Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored, The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Hope you remember how to get there. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I want to talk to you this morning on a message entitled, The Meaning of Being Foolish. The meaning of being foolish. If you'll go to verse 18, I know last time we covered down through verse 20, but back up to verse 18. We're going to slow down here a minute. I want to make sure we understand something. Verse 18 of chapter 3. The Apostle Paul says, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become what? Foolish that he may be wise. Now, what does it mean to become foolish? Well, to do this, I'm going to have to back up and take a running start at chapter 3. I know some people like my review and some people don't. I guess the ones that don't are just going to have to get used to it because sometimes you get disjointed from the book and you've got to be careful that you stay in the flow at all times. I'm committed to that. If you was in Drakensburg, South Africa, we stood up on a high hill one day after walking for a half a mile or so and you just couldn't see where you were going. Have you ever done that? You've been out hiking and you couldn't see where you were. And we finally got to a high hill. And that high hill, that perspective allowed us to see where we'd come from. But it gave us a full view of where we were headed. A big waterfall that we were going to see. And it was precious. If you stood on the high hill of chapter 3, verse 1. And you looked down over the valley to the banks of chapter 4. Here's what you would see. Make sure you get the full picture of what's going on here. After one and one half chapters of Paul really scorning, or not scorning, he didn't scorn anybody, but really bringing the people of Corinth to grips with the fact that they had attached themselves to man and not to God, he shows them the reason why they were doing this in chapter 3. And it's very clear. He says that you're babies in the nursery and you have refused to grow up. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says, And I, brethren... Could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to babes in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Now, there's no indictment in that. He's just pointing back to a time when he came there. He, Timothy, Silas, had led so many of them to the Lord. And there's a time to be a baby, and there's a thirst to being a baby. But the indictment comes in the last phrase of verse 2. He says, even now you are not yet able. You see, they were attached to flesh. 
Babies do that, you know. Babies like to grab something they can see, they can touch, and they can feel. It's very difficult for a baby in a spiritual sense to walk by faith. They'd rather cling to a preacher, cling to a church, cling to a denomination, cling to an experience, anything but cling to Jesus. There's just something about being a baby that hasn't allowed for that yet, and they need to grow out of that. Well, Paul admonishes them. The symptoms of this are in verse 3 and in verse 4. He says, for you are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, they're not good words, folks. Those two words go together always in Scripture. Are you not yet fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? King James adds another one in there, divisions among you. And then in verse 4 he says, for when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not yet mere men? You see, the believers who refuse to grow by faith are like babies in a nursery. And they can be adults. I learned something in South Africa and Australia. Do you know what these things are called over there? Now, you know what we call them, the pacifiers. Now, this has got a cover on it, and I have yet to get that cover off. <clears throat> a lot of good it would do a baby, wouldn't it? They, these come right from, ah, look, <laughs> they come right from South Africa. And they call them over there, we call them pacifiers. Now, my little granddaughter, uh, my son-in-law calls it a snook. Of course, Eric, he's from up north. I mean, you, you can't trust these people. And he calls it a snook. I don't know what a snook is, but she always wants her little snook, you know. They call them over there dummies. Now, that's the funniest thing. In South Africa and Australia. As a matter of fact, when I was preaching out of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, they said they have an expression in Australia that I think is classic. When an adult is acting uh, the wrong way, when they lose their temper, when they're just... As if it was a Christian, they'd be acting like a baby is what they're doing. And they just want their way and they whine and gripe and complain and just want to have a fit one day. They call it spitting the dummy. Have <laughs> you ever watched a little baby and the little baby's just about ready to blow up and it got a pacifier in their mouth? What's the first thing they do? <laughs> they spit it out and then they just let it go. And so when adults do that in Australia, this is adults now, they call it spitting the dummy. Well, Welcome to the church of Corinth. What you need to do is go back to the church of Corinth, hand every one of them one, stick it in their mouth, tell them to get over in the corner. That's exactly what they were. They refused to get out of the nursery. That was their problem. They would not grow up. They'd rather be attached to man than they would be attached to God. You know, I told you the story, I think, of little Johnny went to bed one night and his mama heard a big noise upstairs. She ran upstairs. He had fallen out of bed. And she said, Johnny, what happened? He said, Mama, I guess I just stayed too close to where I got in. That's the church of Corinth. Now, I want you to make sure you get a feel of this. He's showing them where their problem is coming from. They've made a conscious choice not to grow in the Word of God. Now, in verses 5 through 9, he tries to show them. He says, listen, I planted, Apollos watered. He tries to show them we're just vessels. That's all we are. Christ hasn't been divided, as he said earlier in, in chapter 1. He said, we're just vessels, and God is using us. Take what we've shared with you from him and let it cause you to grow. But don't attach yourselves to us. Do you realize that people are still doing that in the 20th century? You know, <clears throat> preachers that stay at a church a long time, and I've been here 16 years, I may be talking about myself, but you stay in a church a long time, and that preacher dies or resigns or does something else, the church falls apart. Because people have attached themselves to a preacher. They've attached themselves to the way things are. And the next guy who comes in, they crucify him, all because they won't come out of the nursery. 
all of us have to face this kind of thing in our Christian walk. Well, Paul says don't do that. Don't attach yourself to the vessel. Attach yourself to the one who lives in the vessel. Verses 10 and 11, Paul shows that God enabled him by grace to lay a foundation in their life. He was used to come into their area and preach the gospel. And the foundation, of course, is Christ. He says in verse 10, according to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. And another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, what he's telling them is that each person, when they become a believer, becomes a builder. A builder. That's very important, by the way. And God respects us more than we respect Him. He gives us a will. We have a choice to make. And we choose whether or not to build up one kind of material or another. He lists those materials in, in verse 12. There's only two kinds. Three in each group. Look at verse 12. Now if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones. That's one group. And the other group is wood, hay, and straw. He's got a choice of these two materials. Every believer is a builder. And we have these two choices. We either walk after the flesh or we walk by faith and let God produce the works through us that will stand His test one day when we are rewarded for those works in our life. Or we choose to walk by the flesh or after the flesh. We're miserable because the Holy Spirit living in us makes us miserable. And if a person's living after the flesh and is not miserable, I question whether he's saved or not. And so therefore, he's building a shack. <laughs> he's going to be building something that's going to burn one day. Because he talks about that test in verse 13. It's going to be accountability one day for allowing God to use you of walking by faith. He says in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 3, Each man's work will become evident. And the word is phaneros. The light will be turned on. For the day will show it. The lucy. It will give information that we really don't have down here. It's very difficult down here to tell the people that are really walking by faith. Because some people, people know the game real well. They play the game real well. But when we get up there, when we see him one day, it will be clearly evident. Because it is to be revealed, apocalypsis is the word means uncovered because it's covered now, with fire. What's going to reveal it? It's going to be fire, not the light. The light will show clearly what's revealed, but the fire is the test. And it says, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. The deeds of the flesh, those immature acts that we do, that we do not confess, repent of, those things will be consumed. And by the way, that's a precious teaching in one way, in one way. It's not a negative thing. God's out to reward us. This is a judgment not for, to approve man, but to approve his works. Remember that. He's not out. He already has you. He already has me. We've been accepted in the beloved. This is not that kind of judgment. This is a judgment for work because God wants to reward his people. Verse 14, <clears throat> if any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive an award. This reward is for those who build upon the foundation by faith. That's why Paul says, man, don't attach yourself to me. That's flesh. Attach yourself to Christ and walk by faith. Grow up. Throw the pacifier away. Come out of the nursery. Come on, man. Let God use you. He wants to use you like he's used us. In verse 15, it clearly shows us that God is not out to get us. And I've heard messages on judgment for Christians preached in ways that would just make you, you cringe. But folks, I want to show you something. This is the heart of God. God. God really wants to reward us. That's what this judgment is for. Verse 15, if any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. The fire is going to consume all that flesh when he stands before God. 
It's not going to be hung up on a screen to embarrass you in front of everybody up there. Have you heard that before? It's not going to be something to nail you to the wall. No, sir. It's going to be consumed immediately, gone. But he wants to reward what is left. There will be a suffering of loss. There will be some kind of shame there because it suddenly dawns on you what salvation was all about, what you didn't do, what you could have had, that kind of thing. But you're still saved. He says he shall be saved yet so as through fire. Now, folks, I, I stand up here sometimes and preach these things and you think I understand them, but I want to tell you something. I did not understand that phrase. What does it mean, yet he'll be saved, yet as by fire? And we were down in Australia and I was preaching in 1 Corinthians 3. Can you believe it? <laughs> I just stayed right in this chapter. And what God began to show me, just doing that, by the way, but I began to think about that phrase. What does it mean, he'll be saved, yet though as by fire? Even though his works are burned up. And then it hit me like a ton of bricks. Jesus Christ is the foundation and the fire cannot destroy the foundation. Folks, listen to me. We were saved not based on our works. We were saved based on his work and his work will stand his own test one day. That foundation is going to sit there. There may not be one, th one brick on it and that man will suffer loss. But buddy, the fire will not consume the, the, the foundation. And I'll tell you what, if you believe you can lose your salvation, you wrestle with that verse for a while. You see, the foundation has been laid and no man can unlay it, and the fire cannot consume it. It will stand. So therefore we're saved, yet though as by fire. Well, Paul then reminds them that Christ lives in them to do through them what they could not do themselves. How many times have we said this in the last 16 years? That's the whole philosophy of ministry here. It's vessels being, being vessels through which God can do his work. No man can do the works of God. God does his works through man. Verse 16, do you not know that you are a temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Wherever I go, He lives in me to enable me to do whatever He's commanded me to do. And when I walk by faith, attach myself to Him in the sense that I, I'm obedient, surrendered to Him, bondservant, slave to Him out of love. I trust His Word. I walk by faith. Then God works through me those things which will stand the test one day when I see Him. Verse 17, Paul sends a message to anybody who would seek to destroy the temple of God. Now remember, believers are builders by the context. This has to be an unbeliever because he's a destroyer. It says in verse 17, if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy. That is what you are. The word destroy there does not mean destroy as we think of it. It means corrupt, defile. And as we studied that together, you remember, it means to defile with the means of deception. In other words, the world is all around us at all times, trying to pull us out of our walk in the Word and put our minds back on the world to think like they think. And once you fall into that trap, what's happened is you've been pulled aside, you've been corrupted, you've been defiled in your walk. And God says, you better not mess with my people. He says again in verse 17, if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what? You are. Well, once, once he's warned whoever it is that seeks to corrupt his temple, then he turns around and refers to the believer himself. And he says, don't deceive yourself. In verse 18 of chapter 3, he says, let no man deceive himself. It's very obvious to me that there had to be the false teachers that had gotten in the church of Corinth. I mean, look at all the idolatry that's in Corinth to begin with. And Paul has this in mind. He's got to have it in mind. Over in 2 Corinthians, he says in chapter 11, verse 3, 
But I am afraid, lest the serpent deceive, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So he already has this in mind. There's got to be somebody there trying to pull them away from their faith walk. And Paul says, listen, you can't do that. You can't allow that. Because the moment you get out of your faith walk, that's going to cost you one day when you stand before God, and you're going to be miserable while you're down here. So don't fall into that trap. Don't deceive yourself. The word deceive comes from two words, ek, out of, and the word that means to seduce, uh, to deceive in the sense of leading out of the right way into error. And it's even in a tense that means stop letting yourself do that. How susceptible we are to being led out from truth. Because we're around people that are smart and the world looks at it as they really have attained and we hear them talking and we start listening to them and we forget what the Word of God has to say and we deceive ourselves. James 1 verse 22 says a very similar thing. He says, but prove yourselves doers of the Word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. He says, listen, anytime I refuse God's Word in my life, it doesn't matter what it is. I mean, you think of the million situations we could all get into in a week's time of all the choices that we make. And when we choose not to, to line up under the authority of God's Word, when we choose not to obey Him, we have conscientiously deceived ourselves. Now, he's opening this up. He said, let no man. This is a lost person or a saved person. But I think the emphasis here is more on the saved person because a lost man doesn't make a conscious decision one day apart from the grace of God just to, just to not deceive himself. He's already deceived. I think he's really referring to the believers here and he's saying, watch out, watch out. And it's so quick that you can slip into that trap. And the moment I stop becoming obedient to God's word is the very moment I have deceived myself, deluded myself, as James says. And then in verse 18, he said, let no man deceive himself. Here, here, here comes the solution. And I know we've gone over this once, but I'm going to go over it again in a different way. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become foolish that he may become wise. There it is right there. Now, whether lost or saved, you've got to become foolish before you can become wise. What does it mean to become foolish? And there are three things I want you to look at. We talked about it, ran right over it, and I think I need to back up and make sure we understand this this morning because there's a richness in this that I failed to bring out when we went over it. For three things I want you to see about becoming foolish. First of all, the technical use of the word foolish. The word foolish in verse 18 is the word morose, M-O-R-O-S. Now what do you think is the English word that we get from that? We're moron, that's right. One who has no capacity to think or reason and therefore acts senselessly. That's morose, that's a moron. That's the word we get. Matter of fact, I looked up Webster, and I, I don't know, we deal with the Greek, not Webster. However, I thought it'd be kind of interesting to see if, since we got that word from there, what Webster says it means. And Webster says that a moron is a feeble-minded person, one who has potential mental age of only about 8 to 12 years old and is only capable under strict supervision. So in other words, a child, a person that's not able to really think and therefore acts senselessly. Now there are several words translated fool in the New Testament, but there are two prominent words. One of them is the word we're dealing with today, and another one is found over in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 22. Seeing the comparison may help you understand the meaning of the word. Look over in Matthew 5 and verse 22. Of course, the Beatitudes, and Jesus is, is speaking here. It's in red, so it's inspired. <laughs> I say that all the time. 
Uh, the black is too. I'm like Bill Stafford. I believe the maps. But in verse 22 of Matthew 5, and you see both these words used and the contrast between the meanings help you understand what he's dealing with here. He says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Reka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Now that's one of the words for fool, Reka. But then he says, and whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now he uses the second one as morose. Now wait a minute. One is guilty before the court. The other one goes to hell because of what he did. Now you see the seriousness of the two things. Reka means to call somebody or label them as stupid, which means they probably know better, but they did it anyway. <laughs> I've told you many times, I don't do dumb things. I do stupid things. I know better, but I do it anyway at times. And that's just stupid. I have enough sense to know better, but I just acted stupidly. However, morose is different. Morose gives the idea, it, it's attacking a person's intelligence. It says he doesn't have enough sense to know. He doesn't have to have the understanding Therefore, whatever he does is senseless. That's morose. You see the difference? One is stupid, but he knew better and he can think it through. But the other one, uh-uh, the other one doesn't have the ability. He just doesn't have the understanding. To better understand it, there's a synonym for the word morose that helps us. It's the word in the Greek, aphron, A-P-H-R-O-N. A means without. That's the primitive ah. And then the other part of it is friend. Comes from the word friend. P-H-R-E-N. Doesn't mean friend like we think of friend, but that's the word. And it means to understand without understanding. And it's a synonym for the word morose. And so a person that is a fool in a, in a technical sense of the word means they don't have the mental capacity. And so therefore, whatever they do, they cannot act intelligibly. Whatever they do is absolutely senseless. What a person, uh, uh, what, a, what a fool is, is morose. That's the person what he does is moria. That's the word for foolishness. And that's, that's the word, by the way, that we're looking at over and over again in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 3. It's the word moria. Moria are the senseless acts of a person who doesn't know better, a person who doesn't have the ability even to understand. So again, one more time, morose is a person who doesn't have that sense or intelligence to understand. Therefore, moria is what he does, and they're those senseless, foolish acts that he does. So the technical use of the word. But now the textual use of the word. Well, you know, you take a word like that out of society and put it into spiritual vocabulary, it changes a little bit. And we need to understand that. <clears throat> Paul brings this word into 1 Corinthians and adds it to the Christians or the believers' spiritual vocabulary. We've seen the word very frequently. The first way he uses it in the text, in the scripture, <clears throat> is to describe the sin-sick world and the way that they view God. Now, that's very important, all right? Uh, they think that, that Jesus coming to die on the cross, the world does, is an act of senselessness and foolishness, and they actually attribute to God then the fact that he's foolish, or we would say a fool. Now, that's a tough estimation of God, isn't it? But that's the way the world thinks. They look at the gospel, they laugh at it. They profess themselves as gods, and therefore, they think God is the foolish one, and what he did through the gospel is absolutely senseless. They believe that God is not capable of understanding their problems and their circumstances. They never turn to him. They never turn to his word. Go back to chapter 1, verse 18. We'll see the word moria, and it tells you exactly what I just said. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. The first phrase there is very telling. It says, For the word of the cross to those who are perishing is foolishness. 
Now, that's the word moria. In other words, ah, who needs the cross? You see, that's foolish. I'm not lost. Have you ever talked to somebody that's lost that didn't know they were lost? <laughs> and you're trying to tell them of what Jesus did for them on the cross and they look at you like you're two brick, two, two brick shy of a full load? They can't understand what you're talking about. What do you mean lost? I'm not lost. Well, you're dead. You're, I'm alive, man. They can't understand. They won't understand. And they see the whole thing as foolishness, an act, a senseless act from a person who couldn't understand to begin with. Well, that's the way they see it. Remember back in chapter 1 of Romans in verse 22? It shows you that when they think this way, they're professing themselves to be wise. But what happens is they're showing themselves to be that which they're claiming God to be. In other words, they're showing themselves to be fools. They're showing themselves with no mental capacity of understanding God. Therefore, everything that God does is senseless in their eyes. They're showing themselves to be fools. It says in Romans 1.22, professing to be wise, they became fools. And the word fools there, moreno, is a form of the word that we're looking at. You see, the world says they don't need God. They don't, they don't want God. How many of you know somebody like that right now? Would you raise your hand? You know them. Let me ask you this, even a more personal question. How many of you are kin to somebody like that? Raise your hand. That's the tougher ones, isn't it? And you're around them and you try to tell them of the joy of Jesus, what Jesus can do for their life, and they look at you. I mean, seriously, they have no capacity to understand. They think everything that you've said is absolute foolishness, which means they think God's a fool because they are their own God. They're not about to listen to God. They don't care about his word. It's senseless and foolishness to them. Well, they're their own God. Look in chapter 1, verse 18 again and finish the verse. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, Maria, but to us who are being saved, look what he says, it's the power of God. The very thing they think comes from a senseless God is the very thing that saves you and me, you see. Well, go over to chapter 1, verse 21. Look down at verse 21. He continues the thought. He says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness. Now careful, he's already told you what the foolishness is. That act of God, which the world thinks is foolish, it's not foolish, but the world thinks it is, of the message preached to save those who believe. This message that the world thinks is an act of senselessness of an incompetent God is the very message that the Apostle Paul preached. Look at verse 23. Keep on going down. Same word, Moria. He says, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, what? Foolishness. Moria. They say, what do you mean? I'm not lost. We've got everything. You know, the, Gent, the, the, the Greeks especially were those who could argue anything. And they, they, all, they thought they had it all figured out anyway. Who needs God? That's why Paul one day when he was in Athens saw that sign and said, to the unknown God. <laughs> and he walked up there and he said, let me tell you who he is. I know him personally. You, you guys think that it is senseless and foolish, but let me tell you who he is and what he did for you and perhaps he can save you while we're here. Well, why do they think it's foolish? Now this is the question that comes to my mind. Why does the world look at the gospel, look at what Christ did for us on the cross? Why do they think it's foolish? Look in chapter 2 and verse 14. We studied this, but I want to make sure you're following the word with me all the way through. I'm taking the word Moria and just following it through. And 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14 tells you exactly why they think it's foolish. It says, but a natural man, sukikos, that's different than sarkikos. And I think to me, as I see it used in scripture, it refers to the lost man. But, but whatever, a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him. That's Maria. They're, they're senseless to him. 
and he cannot understand them. Why? Because they are spiritually appraised. So the first way that Paul uses the word Maria is in, in, is, is, is in where the lost people see the gospel. They see it as foolishness. They see God as not caring about them or understanding them. As a matter of fact, they don't even believe in him. They're their own gods. So whatever he does is senseless and lacks intelligence. And it's interesting to me in this whole line of thinking, in John 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the word logos, which means the divine intelligence. And the word was with God and the word was God. And verse 14 says, And the word became flesh. And God brought his wisdom and intelligence down here to man. And man looks at it and calls it foolishness. That's, that's exactly the lost state of mankind. But the second way he uses it is in chapter 3 and verse 18. He uses it a different way. And he even tells those who want to become wise, they've got to become foolish. You've got to understand this. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become foolish that he may become wise. Now, as we've studied, uh, the moron in the English terms is a little child. What is he saying? If you want to become wise, and I think he's more talking to the church than he is the lost people because they don't make that conscious decision. If, if you're a believer and want to become wise, you become like a child, like a morose who has knows nothing. That's what he's saying. In other words, when I come before God, I say, God, I'm teachable. God, I don't know it all. I don't have it. You know, what, what happens to preachers and what happens to teachers and anybody who's in the Word a lot, you come to think that you've got a grasp on everything and you become unteachable and you can't listen to anybody because you already know it. And that's the problem. And what he's saying is if you want to become wise, no, you become foolish. You come to God as a child. You come to God and say, oh God, I don't know. But God, I want you to renew my mind and teach me so that I can know. You know, Roy Hessian that's with the Lord now, he called me one time. He was going to come to a church for a meeting, and it wasn't here. It was in another state when I was pastoring there. And he said, Brother Wayne, I can't wait to be with you. And I said, Roy, what are you going to preach on? And Brother Roy said, oh, Wayne, will you pray for me? I'm so empty. But would you pray for me that God would just fill me so that we can all feast on the word that he has for us? That's a teachable man. That man was said that when he was 80-some years old. Folks, listen to me. You never stop this way. Some people th think that the way the world thinks. I've got my degrees, therefore I know. No, no, no. There are no degrees in this thing. You always come before God that way. That's the way we approach him. We take our opinions and lay them down at the cross, and we say, God, I want to become foolish so that you, through your word, can make me wise. Wisdom, the true wisdom, is that which comes from God, not which comes from man. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The word for fear there has the idea of awesome respect. You know how we as believers show respect to God that we truly are coming as children, foolish and knowing nothing? It's when we get into his word, we bow down before him and say, God, would you speak your word to my heart and I'm willing to obey it. We hold him up by holding his word up. And Jesus said that in John 14, if you love me, you'll keep my word. And so that's the way we become foolish. We never think we've arrived. We, we can listen to other people as long as it's the Word of God now. And as long as the Word of God is being spoken, we say, God, make me wise. I come to you becoming foolish. I, I come to you as a child. You teach me. Make me teachable. And I'll tell you what I'm learning. 
The older I'm getting, and I know I'm only 54, and some of you say that's awfully young, but some of you are saying that's awfully old, so it depends on which side of that you're on. But one thing I'm learning is the older I get, the more I see the wisdom in this. And I'll tell you why. Because of my stupid failures and sins in my life. And you go down that road for a few times, and after a while, it's such a dead-end street. You come before God and say, God, what do I really know? Will you make me wise? Will you speak to me through your word? Will you renew my mind? And you don't come to him as some authority giving your opinion to God and asking him to bless it. You're willing to detach yourself from denominational thinking and from, from whatever other bias you have. And you attach yourself to him and attach yourself to his word. And you come as a child and you say, God, just speak to me. I want to be a learner. I want to be teachable. And therefore, God can make that person wise. You see, that's the way what God says. And that's the only way we're going to be the vessel through which God can do his work is if we're willing to become foolish that we might become wise. You know, our problems begin, and I guarantee you there are people sitting out here today, our problems begin when we walk away from what God's word says. I was appalled this past week when I read Time Magazine. I was on a plane somewhere. We were on a plane forever. And when I was reading Time Magazine, and it said that the Roman Catholic Church, and if you read it, raise your hand if you read this article, if you, if you know what I'm going to talk oh, you hadn't read it yet. They're about to make a, a move to make Mary the co-redeemer of the world. There's a cross in South America. On one side, you have Jesus hanging there. On the other side, you have Mary hanging there. And at this particular point, if the article was correct, this is what they said, the Pope is really for it. It doesn't matter what God's word has to say. It doesn't matter that in the Gospels, Mary called Jesus her Savior and her Lord. It doesn't matter. You keep the word away from your people long enough, you can lead them any way you want to lead them. And that's what Paul is saying. Attach yourself to his word. Attach yourself to Christ. Stop attaching yourselves to people who corrupt and defile your whole mindset. And shut down your reward one day when you stand before God. We have to be so careful, folks, walking away from the Word of God. There's a relativism that's moved into our world. Well, it's not moved in. It's been there for a while, but it's manifesting itself. It's all over Europe. It's all over Africa. It's all over Australia and definitely in America. We were preaching in London one time, and at the end of the service, a man walked up to me, and he said, man, that was a great sermon preacher. And I said, well, hope so. And he said, but that's your opinion, and I've got mine. And he walked away just happy as he could be. No authority. No authority. Kind of like the book of Judges. Every man does what's right in his own eyes. And I want to tell you some of the things that came to my heart as I was studying this. What we attach ourselves to that shuts down truth and causes us to profess ourselves to be wise rather than become fools so God can make us wise. And one of the things is what you learn in seminary. <laughs> For those of you that are listening to me that have been there and you protect your particular denominational stand on something, or you've had an experience, some kind of experience, and you're going to protect that, it doesn't matter what the Word of God says. You're just going to protect these things, and I'll tell you what happens. You're professing yourself to become wise over the very revelation of what God's Word has to say. That's one of the things we run into when we go overseas, and I'll tell you what, you, your, your prayers for us really means a lot. We're not giving them formulas. We're just preaching Jesus. But what we're running into, eschatology-wise, I'm pre-trib. Tribulation being the seven years. I know there's a great tribulation. I think the 70th week of Daniel, church is out of here before that happens. 
I just believe that. But we're dealing with Amil. We're dealing with mid-trib. We're dealing with post-trib. We're dealing with everything you can think of. Mainly Amil. And when we're preaching over there, we know that they're sitting out there in front of us. But when you honor a text, you have to teach what the text says. I was going out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and it talked about the fact that he will come one day and bring the saints, the spirits of the the parted righteous ones with him, and the righteous bodies of the righteous dead will rise first, and then we who are alive shall be caught up. What does it say? It says caught up. What does that mean? It means caught up. Is that imminent? I reckon it is. Paul said we. Paul thought it might be in his day. People say there's no imminent return of Christ. There's no, folks, they can just say all this stuff and say it so intellectually that they set a trap for people that don't know the word of God. And I'll tell you what, they just buy into it. Matter of fact, I lost, (laughs) I'm always a controversial one because I'm always usually in a text and somewhere along the way, it's going to nail somebody. And I don't mean to nail them, but I I think on this one, I kind of meant to, but I got into this area (laughs) of things that you attach yourself to. And I said, some of you, I was preaching out of 1 Corinthians 3, and I said, some of you are of Calvin, and you have your little tulip. And you're not going to fellowship with anybody who doesn't have your little tulip. Because you're going to defend that rather than defend Christ. You'd rather defend that. And I said, but the others of you, <laughs> you're Armenian. <laughs> you're of Armenius, and you have your little flower, the daisy. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. <laughs> We had an Armenian in our group. <laughs> he came afterwards and he came up to one of the guys in the conference. He said, Just make sure you don't send me any information on the conference next year. And our guy said, well, why do you mean that? He said, because I'm Armenian and I'm not going to listen to this kind of stuff. I went to school. They taught me this is what my denomination believes. I'm not going to listen to anything else. Well, friend, you've just professed yourself to become wise. If the word of God says different, then make yourself foolish so God can make you wise. Bottom line. Listen, folks, I can be wrong. Correct me. Spiros does. (laughs) Two times in 15 years he's ever told me I preached a good message. And I used to worry about that, and I finally thank God for it. I walk out the door and he said, uh-uh, you didn't do your study. Or Bob Westcott or people like that. Hey, listen, if I'm wrong, I'll change it. If you're wrong, will you change it? And if you won't, brother, you have just professed yourself to become wise. You are not willing to be a little child and be taught. You have made up your mind, either written a book, preached too many messages or whatever else, and now the pride won't let you give in and listen to what God's word has to say. That's what Paul is saying. And I will tell you, folks, I've just finally learned. You can't preach through the book of Revelation. Not in our damn time. You can teach a group that wants to study it with you that are open-minded, willing to become children. But you can't preach through it anymore. You'll get cards and letters from everybody you thought because people have already been convinced by the books that they have read. And they're attached to them. And they won't become children. So God's word can teach them. Now what is it that you're grading on you this morning. <laughs> Just got back. I want to stir you up a little bit. What's, what's grading on you this morning? What's grading on you? What is it that's taught in this church that you don't think is right? Well, just let me ask you a question, friend. Number one, are you willing to pray for the preacher so that he can get it right if he's wrong? And number two, are you willing to give up that experience or whatever else you're hanging on to and be willing to listen to what the Word of God has to say? If you are, God can make you wise 
and use you as a vessel through which he can do his work. Otherwise, it's nothing more than pure religious flesh. That's all it is to it. And folks, I put myself right in the same category. Open myself as much as I possibly can to you. If I'm wrong, show me where I'm wrong. But bring the word with you. And if I'm wrong, I'll correct it. You've seen me do that how many times in 16 years? But the problem with most people is they sit, they soak, they listen and say, well, that really didn't relate to me today. And they go right on living their life as if they're the wise ones and they don't even need God. And they're saying by doing that, God, you're a fool. I'm the one who's wise. I don't need your word. I can do it myself. That's what Paul is talking about. The way you become wise is to become a fool. He says you're acting just like the world when you're not willing to receive truth. When our lifestyle begins to develop this way, we begin to produce the right materials for the building one day which will be tested by fire. But if I'm not listen, willing to listen to the Word of God, you, you think with me for a second. <laughs> think with me for a second. I don't know what's wrong with my mind this morning, but it's rolling every which way. Think of the people that you counsel with, you counsel with. I'm not talking about counseling in that way. I counsel, all of us counsel. By the way, I'm going to say one more time, I'm not knocking counseling when I make statements like that. You know what I'm really doing? I'm lifting up the Word of God above anything that's on this earth. I respect it, folks. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm always misunderstood on that. But I want to tell you something. People that you bring in and say, this is what God says, and they get up and storm out of the room, that's exactly what they're saying. I want to be a fool. I'm going to show myself to be a fool. I'm wiser than God. I don't need you. Exactly what they're saying. Now, folks, I'll tell you what. <laughs> that gets in the added area of stupidity. <laughs> but what God's saying is become a child. Become a child. Just let God's Word do its work in your heart. Well, the technical meaning, the textual meaning. He uses it of lost people and how they see the gospel. They see it as foolishness. But it also uses it of, of people who want to become wise. Become a fool. Become foolish. Later on in chapter 4, Paul says, we are fools for Christ's sake. We are open to him. We are like children. We are obeying him. We let his word do its work in our heart and in our life. Well, the third thing is the tragic meaning of the word foolish. When you use the word foolish or fool in regards to lost people, that is tragic because professing themselves to become wise, they become fools. But it's, I think it's more tragic when you use it in reference, not in the way Paul is using it, to a Christian who will not allow God's word to reign and rule in his heart, will not make himself a child to where God can teach him and make him wise. And this is the church of Corinth, folks. This is the church of Corinth. Let me show you how it shows up in the church and your lifestyle. And if these problems exist in here today, I guarantee it's because somebody didn't pay attention to what the word of God had to say. This was, this was in Corinth. This is the church of Corinth. There was gross sin of immorality in their midst. As a matter of fact, Paul said, it's even worse than the pagans. There was the sin of, of believers taking other believers before the unbelieving world in court and suing each other. That was a sin that Paul dealt with. There was the problem of marriage breakups and difficulties. There was the problem of disorderly and disrespectful conduct in church meetings. They had disorder in the services, problems with the Lord's Supper. They made a feast out of it instead of remembering what it meant. There was the problem of eating meat sacrificed to idols. There was the confusion of women's role in the church. There was heresies about the afterlife. It went on and on and on and on. Why? Because this word right here did not hold supreme authority in their life. And they stayed in the nursery, attached themselves to teachers, never listened to what they said, didn't, didn't allow God to use them as instruments of growth in their life. 
They just attached them and excluded others who didn't agree with them. And they didn't allow God's word to change their life. So as a result, all these things begin to rise up in their midst. We are to become foolish. Come before God and say, God, if you don't teach me, I'll not be taught. I'm coming to your word with an open heart and open mind. God, the Holy Spirit, teach me, change me, transform me, renew me. That's the way you approach God. And he makes that person wise and usable in the kingdom of God. I'm going to share this illustration. And the fellow that I'm talking about is going to hear this on tape down in South Africa. So Ben, hello. He's a dear friend. He'll hear it on tape just like I'm speaking to you right now. He gets our tapes every week. They're about a month and a half late. So, Ben, I enjoyed being with you in Drakensburg. Ben is a precious friend of mine, and like all of us, we come out of a framework of thinking. Um, ben still our mill. By the way, Ben, I think you're wrong. But Ben still is still our mill, but I love him. I just told him, I'm going to go first. You send me a postcard, whatever. <laughs> I'm not going to break fellowship with him over that. I love the man, love him dearly. Matter of fact, you may know Ben. How many of you were here several years ago when a a preacher walked in with a priest collar on, blue, and I walked in with the same collar on because when he came over here to preach, I had him bring me one. How many were here when we did that? Anybody? Hey, several of you. And I remember, <laughs> I remember you laughing, and I remember me walking up to the pulpit and saying, welcome to Father Wayne's Midnight Mass. That was the fellow I'm talking about. <laughs> we like to never got the service back that night, but we had a good time. While we were there that week, he spoke on a Wednesday, on a Sunday night. Afterwards, I said, Ben, Let's go get something to eat. I'm starved to death. He said, Where were, he said, I can't, Wayne, because we honor the Sabbath. And we can't go to restaurants on the Sabbath. But he said, I tell you what, if your wife will cook, I'll come over to your house. I said, Ben, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go eat. And I'm, that's my hobby. I do that well. I said, Ben, we're going to eat, and you're going to sit there and talk to us and do whatever else you're going to do. Whatever you can't do, don't do it, but we're going to eat. I said, when I finish eating, I'm going to put your meal in one of those little containers, and you can take it back to your motel room, and at 12.01 in the morning, you can have a feast. How's that? He said, well, I guess so. We went over to this restaurant, <laughs> and I ordered like only I can order. My wife always says, I wished I'd have watched you and get what you got because it's always good. I ordered a big meal. I was starving to death. And one of those days I hadn't eaten all day long and I was just starving. And I had that meal sitting there and Ben sitting there looking down. <laughs> looking around the table. And you know, Ben said, I tell you what, I want to order. <laughs> I can get forgiveness. So he went ahead and ordered. <laughs> and he's a dear brother of mine. Well, when I got to Drakensburg this year, I never knew this. Never knew this. It's been years ago. He was with me one afternoon. We loved to fish. Both of us loved to fish. And we went down and did a little trout fishing. By the way, I caught the biggest rainbow I've ever caught. But I would throw that in. But he was talking to me. He said, you know, Wayne, you don't understand the impact that had on my life. He said, I was taught this and taught this and taught this and taught this. But after that day, he said, I began to go back to the Word and begin to realize we don't live under fear. We live in freedom under the grace of God. And when you're obeying Christ, love is the fruit of that. And when love is produced, there is no law against it. And the law is being obeyed because you're obeying the one who gave it. 
And he said, I got up in my church in this particular denomination that feels exactly opposite. And he said, I apologize to my church and forever preaching it that way. And I preached the message of being under grace, not under law. Now, folks, what did he do? He became foolish. And God made him wise. How did he become foolish? He cut the strings of what man had taught him and let God's word renew and transform his life. That's what Paul is saying. That's what he's saying. And folks, the problems we have at this church, we'll have them. I'm in good and gracious. I'm, not, I'm, an, I'm an idealist, but not, <laughs> I'm not stupid. We're going to have it until Jesus comes back. Look at the New Testament. Every church you deal with has problems. But it always comes from people who are not willing to be taught. They're going to do their thing, and you're not going to tell them anything. That's where problems are developed. That's the church of Corinth. Welcome to the church of Corinth. My prayer is, folks, that we'll be all be teachable. When I, that's why I pray when I get up to speak. God, as I seek to teach, teach me. If anybody needs to learn, I need to learn. But let's make sure it's thus saith the word of God. That's the key. There is no private interpretation of Scripture. And be teachable. I will be. I ask you to be. So we can become wise. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org. 